And I think, again, this is our best, this is our best evidence, is the empty tomb. And what I want to do is I want to start off with something written by Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was a Christian apologist who actually lived in the second century. In 165 AD, he actually cites a letter circulated by Jews in Jerusalem that were antagonistic to Jesus. So this letter that you're going to see here dates to very early or very close to the time that Jesus would have been crucified and raised from the dead. Okay, So listen to the letter that Justin Martyr cites. Now remember, the letter is written by Jews who are antagonists antagonist to Christ. They're not believers. Okay, This is the letter. He says, the, the Jew whoever wrote this, a godless and lawless heresy had sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceive men by asserting that he was risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. What I think is so fascinating about this is, again, that's exactly the biblical account. The biblical account from Matthew 28:13 is that, in fact, uh, look, listen to Matthew 28:13. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's exactly what the Word of God says. And what's so important about this is we have now Jewish unbelievers unwittingly admitting that, in fact, the tomb is empty. And this would have been written very close to the time, again, of the crucifixion and resurrection. Okay. Now, this is a major gaffe on their part if you're going to try to win a debate. Why? Because now the tomb is empty, and all we have to do is argue about why is it empty. Okay. Now, I'm going to show you one more here found in Toledoth Yeshua. And in Toledoth Yeshua, this is actually, Toledoth, by the way, means generation. And this, of course, is Jesus. So, for instance, when you look in the book of Genesis, you'll see the generation of Adam and the generation of Seth and the generation, that's what Toledoth is. So, in about 600 A.D., somebody wrote this piece. Now, this is very late, obviously, but they wrote the generation of Jesus. And so this is another unbelieving Jew who wrote this. And they said, Diligent search was made, and he, that's Jesus, was not found in the grave where he had been buried. A gardener had taken him from the grave and had brought him into his garden and buried him in the sand over which the waters flowed into the garden. Well, now, notice the story 600 years later has changed. Now he was found by the gardener. But again, we have antagonists admitting that Jesus is not in the tomb. That's the big thing. Now, all we have to do is argue about why is he not in the tomb. Okay, that's the big picture. Now, let me show you some different proposals that have been made as to why Jesus is not in the tomb. Possibilities for the empty tomb. Number one, the disciples stole the body. After all, that was the original uh, statement by the Jews, it seems like, because we have it in the Word of God, Matthew 28, 13, and that's what the original letter that Justin Martyr uh, was circulating. So the disciples stole the body. Well, think about the problem with this. Grave robbing was a significant problem as far if you did grave robbing in the day of Jesus, you would be arrested and you would be killed because you didn't mess with the Jews' tombs. Okay? Now notice, were there any arrests? Were the disciples ever arrested for grave robbing? No. In fact, they're preaching openly at Pentecost onward and not one of them is ever arrested for grave robbery. Well, why? Because they didn't rob the grave and the chief priests knew it and they knew they couldn't make it stick. Okay? And so there's a problem with that. Now the second 
possibility was that a dog stole the body. This is what James Dominic Crossan asserts. Now, this is really absurd because, again, we've seen the historical reliability of the gospel accounts, right? Time and time again. Well, the gospel accounts make it clear that he was in a rich man's tomb. He was, Jesus was laid in a tomb that had a, a disc that rolled in a slot. Okay? Now, that would be quite a dog to roll that disc. Okay? I mean, would it not? And so, again, that wouldn't happen in the graves that are being used by the Jews. All right? So, again, I don't know why James Dominic Crossan holds on to that. I think it makes him look very foolish. Number three, the women went to the wrong tomb. But the problem is, to rectify that, all the Jews had to do was produce the body or show them the right tomb. And notice, isn't it interesting, you guys, that, remember, women's testimony was not to be even accepted in the court of law back in this day, and yet the biblical writers allow them to be the first on the scene in in their writings. Well, why? Because when you have the truth, you just let the chips fall where they may. The gospel writers were so consumed that Jesus Christ was, in fact, raised from the dead, they knew they had the truth on their side, so they said, let's just let the chips fall where they may. Let's let truth win. Okay, so they wrote what happened, that's all. All they had to do was say what happened. And again, if the women went to the wrong tomb, then the disciples went to the wrong tomb. How come everybody went to the wrong tomb? And why didn't somebody point out that you're at the wrong tomb? Nobody produced a body later. So friends, this is absurd. This is what's called special pleading, remember? In our, uh, in our fallacies, right? How about the gardener stole the body? That's the one that we see here. Well, that's not what the Jews initially claimed. So the Jews initially claimed that it was the disciples stole the body. And of course, they never arrest the, the disciples for doing that. But now, 600 years later, in Toledoth Yeshua, the story's changing. Guess what? The Christian story's been the same yesterday and still today that Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay? So is this a likely scenario? Well, again, there was no gardener that was arrested. There's no report of somebody stealing his body back then. Any gardener, uh, gardener being arrested and put on trial for grave robbing, especially in such an important case. And again, in all these cases, remember, there was a Roman guard there. And the Roman guard would have to be contended with anybody who was going to steal the body. And the absurdity that they fell asleep, uh, think about it. If they're going to fall asleep, they're going to warrant their own death. Because a Roman centurion or a guard who was underneath a centurion who fell asleep, that warranted a death penalty as well. Okay, So whoever messes with the tomb of Jesus, according to the historical account of the Bible, would have to deal with a contingent of troops. And finally, number five, Jesus didn't really die. This is the swoon theory. That Jesus on the cross faked death. He gets in his tomb. He miraculously kind of comes to. He rolls away the stone. He goes kung fu on all the guards, whips them, and takes off, and we don't know where he goes, right? Well, you guys, this is absurd. There's one thing the Romans knew well, and that's how to kill people, okay? They knew how to kill you, all right? And we have, remember the spear in the side? The spear in the side is further testimony that Jesus was dead because, remember, water came out. And I believe, I'm not a medical doctor, but I think if I recall, the term was cardiothrombosis, where you have water that actually pools in a chamber. It's a well-known medical fact. Ask a cardiologist, not me probably. But um, it's a literal, literal medical fact that you'll have water pool in a chamber. Okay? So again, they knew that he was dead. Plus, think about the night that he was crucified, or before he was crucified, that night that he was tried, you know, he had six mini-trials. He went before Annas. He went before Caiaphas. He went before the Sanhedrin. From the Sanhedrin, he went to Pilate. And then from Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate. 
all the while being scourged. Remember, he took a scourging, a scourging that would have left most men dead. He had no sleep. He had been walked miles with no food. He had been beaten. He had a, a crown of thorns put upon him. Isn't it likely that he would die first of, remember, he had two criminals next to him? So, friends, it was likely that he would die so that they wouldn't have to sludge his legs, especially with the blood loss that he had undergone with no sleep and exhaustion. He couldn't hold himself up anymore, and he is asphyxiated. Friends, none of these things make sense. The only thing that makes sense is the resurrection. And, friends, if the the simplest answer is the best, go with it. All right, now, let me give you the testimony that I think we see of the empty tomb. And I'm going to turn you to a book of Acts, and I'm going to show you how Peter uses the empty tomb. Whether he, igno- he doesn't actually use the term empty tomb, but you're going to see that he uses this exact theory. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to the Jews, and he says, This man, talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again. For David says, and here comes Psalm 16:10, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And again, I think that's a reference to the fact that he was only in the ground three days. And then he continues, he says, brethren, now listen to this, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in what? And his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Friends, all the Jews had to do that he was preaching to is to say, you know what, this Jesus who you're so fond of, this Jesus whom you're preaching, he's in the tomb like David. Remember, these guys knew what had happened in the events. They had heard the word. They knew what was going on in the street. They knew that the Messiah had been crucified. And you don't think one of them knew where he would have been laid? Friends, all the Jews had to do right here to wreck Christianity is produce the body, but they couldn't. And the reason they couldn't do it is because he wasn't in the tomb. He was raised from the dead. Okay? But David, according to Peter here, was in the tomb but not Jesus. And again, friends, I think that's the best explanation of the evidence. The empty tomb is powerful, and we can preach it. Where is he? Every other explanation for the empty tomb falls short. So let's add up the evidence that we have. We have the motive, the evidence of motive. Why would men who had everything to gain by not being a Christian and everything to lose by becoming a Christian become Christians unless Jesus had been raised from the dead? Why would Jesus' own brothers deny him and then one day later be bashed to death because they won't deny their brother is the risen Lord unless there's a resurrection? Let's talk about all the secular uh, evidence. We, th- we see, friends, the corroborating evidence in the Bible that Jesus existed, that he was crucified during the reign of Tiberius under Pontius Pilate, that there was reports of his resurrection, that there were many people who believed in him. In fact, they believed in him, and so they would change their lives. Um, we have extra-biblical accounts of the darkness, of the earthquakes. And finally, friends, we have the empty tomb, the tomb that is empty. And the best argument the Jews had at the time was that the disciples stole the body. How did they beat the Roman guard? Why weren't they arrested for this? How come it is that Peter doesn't die till years later? How come it's Paul? Because remember, he becomes associated with these people. How come he dies under Nero? How come none of these men are ever charged with grave robbing? Because they never did it. You see, their story doesn't add up. The empty tomb proves, friends, 
that the resurrection occurred. And so tonight my challenge to us as a group is I think we need to take this evidence and we need to help roll away the stone so that others can look in the grave and say he's not here. Okay? Friends, the resurrection is a great apologetic tool and it's the core of our gospel. So with that, I'll shut up and I'll let you guys ask questions and discuss this, all right? I just wanted to comment because it, the topic excites me so much. The, yeah. the resurrection is such a powerful proof. Yeah. And not only because we have so much evidence for it, like you've only, you know, done about a 30% of the evidence that yeah. I've heard in the, in the past. Right. Um, but also because it's so convincing. If this is true, there's no denying yeah. The truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel. That's right. And so um, one other note that I wanted to emphasize was that no other religion or even cult claims that its leader rose from the dead. Wow. Muhammad didn't rise from the dead in Islam. Joseph Smith hasn't risen from the dead, according yeah. to Mormons. Uh, B- Buddha has not risen from the dead. No. They have reincarnation, of course, <laughs> but it's not, it's not a He's resurrection. He's a now. And yeah. why? Because it's so easy to to disprove. Right. That's right. You need to have really good evidence That's to claim right. that. That's and right. And no one ever does because it yeah. hasn't happened to anyone except Jesus. That's right. That's a whopper to tell, isn't it? Yeah. You better have the evidence on your side. Yeah. Really good point. I have one that you could either, it's either fact or fiction. Maybe you could answer it. I gardened years ago for a woman who is Jewish. And we were discussing this, and she said, well, I was always told that the apostles became cannibals and ate Jesus, and that's why Christians celebrate the um, Lord's Supper. <laughs> that's a new one. <laughs> but the other thing that I love, he said about, the, you know, about Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius and all them, yeah. none of them ever were resurrected, but you know what? Jesus died for me. They didn't, so I think. Yeah, amen, yeah. That is a new one. I've never heard of that. Yeah, that's a new element to the Lord's Supper, isn't it? That's really sad, you guys. Yeah. I think uh, one thing that I've seen uh, with this whole story of being raised, just you know, it's a powerful story, powerful testimony. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it still takes an act of God to open yeah. someone's eyes to that's the truth. Right. Because even Mary Magdalene, he, she mistook the risen Christ as the gardener. <laughs> that's right. I think that's, that's quite ironic, but yet yeah. she didn't recognize who he was. And whom are you looking for? That's right. You know, but then he yeah. said Mary. And then, you know, as, as it says in John 10, um, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That's right. So. Amen. You know, and that's what John chapter 3 is all about. Jesus says, unless a man be born again, he cannot see. Hurrah-oh, he can't even see the kingdom of God. And you're right. Being born again, you guys, by the way, technically, it's about regeneration. Being born again is about God through the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts so that we can perceive our need and we can receive the gospel. And so John chapter 3 answers that very question. Unless the Spirit regenerates the heart of a person, they are spiritually dead. And that's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, that we're dead in our trespasses. Well, what do dead men do? They don't do anything but decay. Okay, so in, in my previous Christian walk, I thought we were drowning. We were people who were drowning, and we had to kind of struggle to get to God. When I finally got my theology right, I realized I was dead. And it took God to fuck me, put me in the boat, and then give me CVR. And that's the picture in John chapter 3. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted uh, to agree with that, that the Spirit has to move. But yeah, you've given us a lot of ways to direct people's thinking, to call attention 
and focus their thinking, if nothing else, because I think you have to you have to think on these things. You have to be confronted with the facts before you can believe, yeah. and uh, that's part of preaching or uh, discipling or or just uh, giving a testimony. Yeah. And uh, so you've given us uh, a lot of different things to think about, a, mm. a lot of different ideas to focus on, yeah. uh, attention getters or conversation starters yeah. that we could use to get into the subject. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, with our testimony then and the, the movement of the Holy Spirit. You know, yeah. People. Well, thanks, Mike. I'm glad. I hope that's happened. And that ties into to what we believe, um, compatibilism, not cannibalism, but compatibilism, <laughs> where, yes, we believe the Holy Spirit does it, but God uses means. Uh, remember, uh, Paul teaches in Romans 10, you know, how will they believe in someone until somebody preaches or unless somebody preaches? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good tidings. So, yes, the Holy Spirit does it, but God uses means. And what we're trying to do here, and again, like uh, Patrick even said, I'm only hitting just a portion of it. But, but what we want to do is use the best ideas possible because we know that God is a God of truth. Jesus says, I came to testify to the truth. And so God is going to honor our good arguments and the Holy Spirit will work through them. So, yeah, Nick. Uh, kind of in line with the idea that, you know, the Muslims die for their faith and, um, you know, how does that make it any different than ours? Yeah. And I think the difference is is that people throughout history have died for many, many things that they believe to be true. Yeah. But very, very few, if any, have ever died for something that they knew to be false. And Great the disciples would have had to have knowingly eaten the body, hid the body, yeah. and then died <laughs> for what they knew to be false. Right. Which is not logical. That's right. And especially, it's interesting, the character witness that we have of them, they, were, they, they admit up front, yeah, we denied him. Think about what Peter no, denied no. him three times, and all of a sudden he goes to his death for him. What accounts for that change? You're absolutely right. You won't give your life for a known lie. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good argument. Yeah. And I don't know that I'd join a religion if I, the first thing you had to do is eat a dead body. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound appealing. Uh, yeah, no. um, I don't want to detract from the resurrection at all, but I'm just one little thought is in the back of my head because I know it's some of the evangelism tools that the Ten Commandments are used yeah. if they're asking if this person has ever lied or stolen or anything. Yeah. And so the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. And yeah. I always thought that Sabbath worship was was identified with the fact that creation and that then and that in Leviticus they it says it should be celebrated forever. So I'm just wondering if your comment on that. Yeah, um again we see in Colossians two, just we actually saw in this past um when you saw that verse that it's actually done away with. Well, let me explain why. Think about the law is the civil law, we have the ceremonial law, and we have the moral law. And in fact, Jesus actually makes a distinction in the law itself. In Matthew 23, he talks about the weightier parts of the law. He talks about how the Pharisees will make sure they have the right amounts of cumin. Remember the right amount of of, uh, anise and cumin. But yet they neglect the weightier parts of the law, namely love and mercy and so forth. So Jesus makes a distinction between parts of the law. And I'm just saying that for those who claim, well, there's this, this distinction between the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral is arbitrary. Jesus himself makes a distinction between different elements of the law. But here's the thing. We see, for instance, in Exodus 25:40, we have Moses given the tabernacle after a pattern. 
Okay, And so he is to construct the tabernacle after a pattern of the things to come. The writer of Hebrews picks up on that, and he uses it in chapter 8 of Hebrews to talk about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant rather, um, the Mosaic Law, was a foreshadowing in a picture which the substance is now fulfilled in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in Colossians 2. The Sabbath is fulfilled in messianic rest. We're resting, we have shalom in faith in Messiah because now we have our salvation. And so once we have entered into messianic salvation through faith in Christ, now we have this Sabbath rest. And so that's been done away with. That only pointed and looked forward to the day of Christ. And so that's why Paul says, let no one judge you according to those things, including the Sabbath, because again, that would be returning back to the thing that foreshadowed the real to come. You see what I'm saying? It's returning back to Mount Sinai rather than going to the New Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right. Initially, yep, yep. Dick and I talk about this on... I don't. I, our recording and what's going on up now are so far apart, but pretty soon, isn't that chapter four? We do a whole ex, five, four. Well, whatever the case, the book of Hebrews argues very strongly that Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ, not in periodic worship. And the argument is basically this: in Genesis two, two, it said that God rendered His rest. Yeah. It says in Psalm ninety-five that there is a rest. For the people of God, future, okay, and so the author of Hebrews argues that the rest God entered was a permanent state, not a periodic state. God didn't rest, and then seven days later rest, and then seven days later rest, and then seven days later rest. He rested, period, because his works are finished. And then Psalm 95 predicts a rest that will be like the rest that God had in Genesis 2:2, and it will be permanent. Once you enter it, you stay in it. Wow, amen. Sabbath keeping is not a permanent rest. You have to keep doing it over and over and over again. Wow. Yeah, Sunday is periodic worship. Sabbath rest is messianic salvation. And if you listen to our radio shows from Hebrew, in Hebrews 4 and 5, we've been, through, we've been doing so much Hebrews, it's running out of our ears. <laughs> yeah. But we, we do a very strong argument to that end, okay? Mm-hmm. Because some people will come along and trouble the saints saying, if you don't worship on Saturdays, then yeah. you're breaking the Ten Commandments. Right, seven-day Adventist. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The Jewish priests had very elaborate things that they had to do with the blood. Yeah. And so for the Jews to, to say um, that we're drinking the blood, it's extremely offensive to them. Hmm. And then the eating of the body comes in on the same thing. And then um, the, the night before all of these awful things happened to Jesus, yeah. he spent the entire night up agonizing in pain and agony and pleading with God to let it be another way. Yeah. Take this from me. Do I have to go through this? Yeah. But he knew what he was facing. Hmm. And as a man, that was a hard thing for him to do. Yeah. None of the rest of us would be able to do it. Right. That's a very so, so good point. So he's, he's already exhausted. Yes, exactly. In fact, um, the Hebrew term for the garden that he's in is Gethsemane, which literally means olive press. And so the imagery there is Christ enters into the olive press. Now, an olive press squishes olives and the oil comes out. But the imagery there is Christ is under the great weight of what? Our sin. And he is pressed so heavily upon that what comes out of him is his own blood. 
And so the imagery is beautiful. It shows us again the divinity of the scriptures. So yeah, you're right. He is exhausted, thoroughly exhausted and physically beat by the time he even gets to the cross. Yep. By the way, the Sabbath discussion in Hebrews is in chapter 4. So as we go through that, you'll hear that argument. No, that's great. Do you have any suggestions for, if we're dealing with um, skeptics, um, how and why and when to bring up the resurrection? Because uh, I felt like in the past, if I bring, bring, bring up this huge topic of the resurrection, that's really incredible for them to believe. Mm-hmm. They're going to spend all their time just telling me how huge and incredible that is. And, sure. Um, whereas some some other more minor point might be easier to get them to think. Yeah, um, I'll tell you what I believe. What I try to do when I'm witnessing to somebody initially is I try to convict them of their sin. And oftentimes I'll use the Ten Commandments, but if that doesn't work, I'll resort to telling them. <laughs> I'll say, you know what, you're a wretched sinner, and the Word of God says so, and it declares it. And they'll say, well, I don't believe the Word of God. And I'll say, ah, well, you should. And then I'll break into my evidence, and I'll break out Sennacherib's prism, or I'll break into uh, the falling of the walls of Jericho, or I'll get into Daniel chapter 8. How we, you know, so I'll get into my evidence to say, well, why don't you believe the Word of God? I'll give them case after case. And so what I'm trying to do is show them that the Word of God is reliable, and it's declared that you're a wretched sinner. And I like to use Psalm 5, because Psalm 5 talks about how Yahweh will not allow those who do evil to be in his sight, literally to sojourn in his presence. Okay? And I'm saying now, the word has declared that you're a wretched sinner. And the psalm says you can't be in his presence. So something's got to give. You're, the analogy I like to use is if you ever stand around a campfire and you burn your hand, you don't yell at the fire because you know your hand is incompatible with fire. In the same way, you and I, as wretched sinners, are incompatible with the Holy God. And we need to be made compatible. So the point is, is I tell them that they're wretched sinners. And at that point, if they respond to that and say, yeah, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned I'm a wretched sinner and that the wrath of God is upon me. Then I'll start explaining the gospel. And part of my gospel presentation usually always involves using the resurrection if they're really interested. Sometimes if they're not interested and they don't feel that they're being, you know, I'm not a sinner. This is a, I won't even, I won't even, it's kind of like throwing your pearls before swine. I won't do it. And I'll just leave it alone. So in a sense, um, so I'm trying to answer it by saying, I don't shy away from it. It should be part of the gospel presentation. But again, if they're not convicted of their sins, I don't throw my pearls before them. I just walk away and say, well, the Lord has to work with them more. You see what I'm saying? But yeah, but, but it's a good one to bring up in the gospel presentation. And the other thing is we have evidence of it. We have such good evidence. So yeah, yeah it should be part of our gospel presentation, the resurrection. Yeah. And, and the other thing, I like what Gendron says. He says the R's, repentance, resurrection, and... Um, I'm missing an R. <laughs> Resurrection, repentance, and oh, righteousness. The other thing, too, I often forget. We'll talk about the atonement, the propitiation that Christ gave us. But a lot of times, you guys, we forget to mention we need to be clothed in his righteousness as well. We need not only to have our sins forgiven, but we need a foreign righteousness to be given to us. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 5:17, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so literally, he filled to the full the requirement of the law on our behalf. He filled to the full. Think about the laws of bucket. My bucket's empty and leaking. He fills to the full, though. His, his bucket's full, and he's able to offer that to God. I don't have one. Mine's empty, you know. And that's kind of the picture that I use. I, I do a lot of ministry, by the way, to kids, so some of my analogies are fairly juvenile, but they work for me, and they work for the kids, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Eric, thank you. Very well, thank well. you, guys. Thanks for all your hard work, you guys. You guys have been through a lot here, so thank you. Thanks, Bob.